name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. You know, I must, I must confess that... Uh... You know, one of the things that a pastor does, uh, one of his primary uh, focuses, I think, has to be preaching, especially if he has this desk most of the time. And uh, so I, I long to do a good job at preaching, and I work hard at, uh, at that. But I must confess to you, I think I preach too long. Not like the old guys. You know, if you go back to uh, the Puritans, I mean, I'd have people walking around with sticks waking you up, right? So... Um, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we ought to. Maybe we ought to institute that again, right? But uh, so uh, I, uh, I appreciated some things I read this week. They weren't sent to me, but I read them nonetheless. There's a fine line between a long, drawn-out sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> and then one preacher uh, uh, got this anonymous note that said, "Hey, the Gettysburg Address was only 272 words." But uh, I'm sorry, I'm not as succinct as Abraham Lincoln, but I'm going to try to be a little bit more succinct today maybe than, than I have been. In our study of John, we find ourselves, if you happen to be our guest this morning, and I've seen a couple, we're glad you're here. In our study in John, we're, we're at the last night of Jesus' life before he is to be killed the next, uh, the next day, about three o'clock he's going to die. And uh, so this is his last night, and as we've said numerous times, he's spending time with his uh, closest confidants. This evening is devoted to 11 men who have been with him since the beginning, and uh, he is pretty much sharing with them, I think, uh, personally. He's sharing with them specifically. He's sharing with them tenderly, and he is telling them things he wants them to know before he, before he dies. And so, again, as I've said previous Sundays, this, this stuff is important because it's the last night of Jesus' life. Uh, Maybe may more important. I don't, I don't know if it's more important or not. But um, Last week we saw that Jesus, before he left them, said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans without any help. I, I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm returning. And I told you I thought he meant that he was speaking of his resurrection, but it's very clear that at least in some ways he's saying, I'm coming to you in the person of, of the spirit of truth, that the Father and I are going to send you. Now, he's going to be with you, and he's going to be in you, and he's never going to leave you. He's going to be there all the way to the very end, he says, specifically. He's going to be there to the end. What that means is, until Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is working in us. And he's not leaving. He's not, he's not going to ever finish that. He's with us to the very return of, of Christ. And so what I did last week is we kind of divided the text. If you would, I skipped chapter 15 because Jesus talks about the Spirit in 14. He talks about the Spirit in 16. In 15, except for the last verse, he's talking about some other stuff. And so we combined those texts last week. We skipped 15. This morning, we're going back to chapter 15. Now, if I was going to teach this morning the whole chapter, I would have entitled it Fruit, Friends, and Foes, but that's too much material to cover today, so we're just going to deal with the fruit. So I'm I'm, I'm calling this talk this morning, Bear Much Fruit from the Words of Jesus. Our text is, is John 15, 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them up into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete." 
I can't prove this, but uh, you remember from last week that Jesus has been in, in a room above uh, a, a, somebody's house, I'm assuming. It's a, evidently a large room. They've had the Passover meal there together, and now they've left. Part of the text that we read last week says they left the upper room, and we know where they're going. They're going to the Garden of Gethsemane, because it would be in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus would pray to the wee hours of the morning, and then he would be arrested, and then imprisoned, and then, of course, crucified the next day. But they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Does this take place after they get together? Gethsemane? Does is Jesus tell them this after they get there, or is this along the way? I, you know, again, I'm speculating, but I think it's on the way. And I'm going to say something else. They would have passed through a countryside littered with vineyards. And, and, and again, I, I'm speculating here, but I'm wondering if maybe those vineyards didn't prompt this metaphor that Jesus now uses with his disciples as they're walking through the vineyards. He's, he's, he thinks, well, this, you know, it just is a great metaphor for what I want to teach. And he employs that metaphor, and this is how he begins. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. I don't know about you, if you've ever wondered this, I've wondered it my entire Christian life, I guess. Why does Jesus say, I'm the true vine, and not just the vine? Why doesn't he say, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who remains in me will bear much fruit? Why does he, why does he say, I am the true vine? I'm, I'm going to tell you why I think he says, I may, not, I, may, I may not be right, okay, but I'm going to tell you why I think he is saying he is the true vine. We have to kind of go back into Jewish history and, and know that the grapevine was the symbol of Jewish nationalism. For example, here's a really clear verse, Isaiah 5, 7, but there are others. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. A grapevine had been used as the emblem of Israel for many years. In fact, in the intertestamental period, the Jews uh, put a grapevine on the backside of their coins. I guess that would have been the, the tails of their coins had a, had a vineyard on it. On Herod's temple, when he rebuilt the temple, or when he added to the temple, a large gold grapevine was used to decorate the gates of the temple constructed by, by him. And the grapes on that grapevine were actually jewels. For the Jews of Jesus' day, Israel was the vine. Israel was the vine. And I think that night, Jesus is juxtaposing, again, just bear with me, and this is really not the heart of my message, but I, I just want to address why I think Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. So Jesus is juxtaposing, in my, in my opinion, himself in opposition to Israel. And he is saying, I am the true vine. Just days earlier, Jesus had shared this parable with his, his disciples and many others who were there. This is from Matthew 21. Just listen. You know this parable well, I imagine. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, this time the same thing to them. Finally, he said to his his son, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw that it was the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those farmers? They answered, he will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. And Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Now listen, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be, will be broken to pieces, but whoever, on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Jesus had just got through telling the Jewish leadership that God was going to be taking the kingdom from them and giving it to another. And that other would be those of us who belong to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, listen to what Peter says about this, talking about us, the body of Christ. He says, as you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living or to God, a living stone rejected by the people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become a cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So on that night, what I believe Jesus said to his disciples was was pretty clear to them. He was saying to them, I am the true vine. And he was claiming in himself the fulfillment of all things. Jesus was saying, I am the source of life that would bring forth fruit unto God. And God is going to be the the caretaker of this true vine. Jesus is God's true vine, not Israel. The purpose of the vine is to produce fruit. The intent of the caretaker is to help the vine accomplish the goal. Jesus uses this as an analogy of the relationship of the father to the son. And he says the the son's desire is to please the father. And in all things, that's what he does. He does the father's will. And at the same time, the father enables the son to accomplish all those things. And that's why Jesus could preach and teach and raise the dead and do all the things that he did because the father was enabling the son to do all the things that would bring glory to himself. Now... These are in my notes and I'm reading and I got cotton mouth because I know not everybody's going to agree with me and I'm a, I'm a two in the Enneagram, whatever that means. So, uh, but before you stand up and shout at me that God's not finished with Israel and run out the back door, before you do that to me, listen, listen, I don't know what God's got planned for Israel in the future. I really don't. But here's what I want you to hear and this is what Jesus is saying. Listen to me carefully. Jesus is the true vine of life. He always has been, and he always will be. And it is not any nation, not even the nation of Israel. Jesus then explains the role of the caretaker in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he, produce, he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit, so that you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. They would have all been familiar with what Jesus is talking about here because they grew up in an agrarian society. They would have all known that this is exactly what happens. The the vineyard keepers come along and they prune off all the branches that are bearing no fruit. Those branches may have been diseased or they may have been just really healthy branches but no fruit on them. So they would have cut them off. And the branches that were bearing fruit, they would have cut them back, even if they were bearing fruit. Now, my father was a grape guy. You know, he had grapevines at our house, and he was always pruning them. And he always pruned them to get the most grapes. So dad would start off by cutting all the dead branches off the vine that just, for whatever reason, had died or were sickly or just didn't have much, you know, um, strength to them or whatever. He'd cut them off. And, uh, then he, but then he would go through, and this is what's amazing to people, he would go through and cut off these really healthy branches that were really long and had all kinds of leaves and sometimes were pretty thick. He would cut them off because dad's purpose was to produce fruit on the vine. You say, well, how does that work? Why, why does cutting off branches do that? Well, it works because, so hey, say there's a branch here with some fruit on it, and then it's got this long branch that continues to go out here with lots of leaves on it. He cuts that off so that all the power of the vine then goes to that branch to produce the fruit. So you can, so vines can grow really, really big, surprisingly big, and they can look really, really healthy, but they have just very little fruit on them because all of their energy go, is going to growing the vine and growing the leaves. 
What God is looking for, what Jesus says God desires out of the vineyard that is himself, right, is he desires that the branches bear fruit. And he says that the ones that are not bearing fruit, he's going to cut them off. And the ones that are bearing fruit, he is going to uh, prune them back. Now, here's a question for us. Um, How does God prune us, right? Because that's Jesus' implication in the text, isn't it? That he's going to prune us. Well, I think one of the ways that the text tells us that he's going to prune us is he prunes us by the word of God. You see that Jesus says, you know, uh, I've, I've made you clean by the word. So the word of God is God's agent of cleaning us and changing us. And I want to suggest it's the way God prunes us as well, the word of God. And so Paul would write to Timothy, he would say the word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any two edged sword. He would say that the word of God has been given to us to teach and to reprove, to correct and train. So it's the word of God that God uses to prune us. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So you're sitting here this morning, and I'm seeking to do my best to teach God's word, and and God the Spirit, hopefully, is, is using the words of Jesus, and maybe the way I've put them together, and he's seeking to speak to your heart. And hopefully he's going to speak to our hearts and there's going to be things that we're going to do in response to what God is telling us. He's pruning. He's cutting away. He's saying, hey, this is something I want out of your life or this is something I want in your life. This is what I want you to do in response to what you're hearing. So God is pruning us through his word. But that's not the only way he prunes us. That's the easy way, right? I mean, that's the the way that maybe doesn't hurt so much, although maybe sometimes doing what God wants us to do can hurt, you know? But, but here's another way God prunes us. He prunes us through trials and tough times. And this morning in our prayer time, we read this text, right? And I remember one person was praying, and they were praying about how, how much it hurts to be pruned. And they were, they were talking about this aspect of God using difficulties in our life to prune us, to cut away stuff in our life that doesn't need to be there. So here's just a couple of verses. This is uh, from the book of James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So in other words, what, what James says is God uses trials to mature me, to change me, to cut away things in my life. Paul says something similar in Romans. He says in chapter 5, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, proven character hope, hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, Paul's saying very much the same thing. Trials are what God uses to cut off stuff in my life that's just not being helpful or not being effective. I'm not going to try to give you an example of how that works, but I, th- I think we know, you know, if, um, well, let me give you an example. And again, I, I'm going to pull out my, the, the thing that's the big thing in my life, and that's Shep's death, right? When Shep died, I'm telling you, so much fell away. So much fell away from my life as far as what I considered to be important. It changed my thinking. So God uses trials in our life to to prune us and to bring us and to drive us to greater maturity and greater dependence on Him and a deeper relationship with Him. Now back to the text. And Jesus shares with them uh, the heart of what He's trying to say. And and really, this is is the heart of the the talk, right? I, I think the true vine thing really is trying to say, guys, don't find your life. Don't find your life in your ethnicity. Find your life in me, okay? Find your life in me, but here's the heart of what he says. Stay connected to me. Remain in me. Abide in me. These are all words that different translations use. Abide in me. And the metaphor continues with this back and forth comparison. And then he says, just like a branch can't bear fruit when it's unconnected to the vine, if you don't remain in me, you're not going to bear any fruit. You can't bear fruit either. Then he repeats his premise. I am the vine. You are the branches. If as a branch you stay connected, here we go to the other side. If you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. Then he goes back to the other side. If you don't remain in me, you're going to be gathered up like a branch that's been thrown on the ground and you will be burned. And if you do remain in me, he goes to the other side. You can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Now I want to remind you like I did last week that Jesus is speaking to 11 specific people in these texts. Okay? 
Now that doesn't mean, I don't mean to imply that there's no application or that this is not meant in some, in some way for us, but I'm telling you, this is directed at those 11 men at that particular moment, and he's speaking to their hearts, right? And this is what he says to them. He says, if you remain in me, men, ask whatever you will, and I will do it. Now, you know, if, if Jesus may have meant just the 11 when he said that, that they could ask anything and he would do it, including raising the dead, which we know Peter raised the dead once or twice, right? And different things that they did that were that far outside the norm for most Christians. But most of us like to think that that's, that text is applied to all of us. So if it is, I simply want to add a caveat to it and a caveat that, that we must have. God is not our genie in a bottle. He's not, he's not this thing that I rub and say, whatever I want, you do it for me. That's not what Jesus is saying in the text, right? So the caveat must be when Jesus says that if you ask me for anything, if you ask God for anything in my name, I'll do it. The caveat must be that we're asking, he must define Jesus' name as, as in accordance with God's will, okay? That sure, that sure changes the meaning, right, from the genie in the bottle and whatever I ask, God's going to do, to whatever I ask that happens to be God's will, God is willing to do that. But then again, I'm not adverse to saying Jesus, you know, I don't want us to forget that Jesus is talking to these 11 specific men. And it could be, because there is a, in chapter 17 when we get to it, there is something that applies just to them and not to the rest of us. You can't make it, in my estimation, you can't make it say more than just to what he's saying to them. All right? So in this case, it could be the same thing. And he's saying to them, whatever you ask me in my Father's name. And why would he do that? Because they're, they're the apostles on which the church would, would be built. So either way, Jesus is saying, if we remain in him, we're going to have this ongoing relationship with God where he hears our prayers, he knows our needs, he's listening to us, he's answering us. And then Jesus in verse 8 says two really important things in one sentence, okay? You got verse 8, it's just a short little sentence, but this is what he says. My father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, the first thing that Jesus says in that verse that's so big is that my father is glorified. He's made big. In other words, people get to see him in you when you bear much fruit. That's really important for us to remember. How is, how is God going to be recognized in the world through us. It's going to be through us bearing fruit. That's what he says. This is how my Father is glorified, that you who follow me, you who remain in me or are connected to me, when you bear much fruit, my Father is made big all around you. People get to see him for who he is. And the second thing he says there, Jesus says, is our fruit is evidentiary. It proves that we are his disciples. He said, my father is glorified and you prove to be my disciples. When we are connected to Jesus and we bear fruit, then we thus note ourselves or label ourselves as being his followers. And you remember it was in Antioch that people began to refer to those followers of Jesus as little Jesuses or little, little Messiahs or little Christ because they were like him. Then one more time on the theme, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Abide in me. Abide in my love. Stay with me. Stay connected to me. And then he tells them this, is, again, it's part of the metaphor, I guess, but he says, he says, and if you stay in me, my joy is going to be in your heart. If you stay connected to me, your heart's going to be filled with joy. And, and not just any joy, not just a little joy, your heart will be filled with joy if you stay connected to me. That's what he says. We'll come back to that in just a bit. Now, if you're tracking with me, and I always hope that I'm, I'm speaking in such a way that you're following logical sequences that I'm laying out for us, but if you're, if you're with me in, in how I've laid this out, then hopefully there's two questions that have risen in your heart, two absolutely indispensable questions, two questions we've got to look at and we've got to address, okay? Now, the first question, and, and again, Jesus you know, I'm not sure he really answers these questions. So I'm going to try to answer them, okay? The first question is this. You say, I get it. We're to bear fruit. Not a little, but a lot. 
But here's my question. What is fruit? Jesus said, if you remain in me, you'll bear fruit. You're going to bear much fruit. But what is fruit? He never, he never says. Never really says. He sort of says. But he never really defines it. What is fruit? So here's what fruit is. And I'm going to turn to Isaiah 5-7. Again, that same verse I quoted to you earlier. It's the fruit that God was looking for in Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The fruit that God was looking for in Israel, which I'm assuming since God says, hey, I'm going to take the vineyard from you and give it to another who will bring forth the fruit thereof. I'm going to assume the same fruit is what God is looking for. And here's what God is looking for from us who follow him. He's looking for righteousness and justice in us. He's looking for a character that is filled with justice and holiness and righteousness and holy living. Now, I don't doubt that God desires the fruit of me sharing my faith and seeing other people come to him, but that's not the context here. The context seems to be, if we, if we go back and look at, at Isaiah and other passages, the context seems to be the fruit he's looking for is the fruit of character. It's the fruit of, it's the fruit of righteousness that comes from following Jesus. That's what he wants from us. And Paul would later kind of define it for us really specifically. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is, and you know it, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what it is. That's the fruit. Jesus was crucified so that you and I, by the Spirit of God, might bear fruit, fruit of righteousness and holiness. Let me read it to you again. Love. See, the fruit that God desires to see in us is love. He desires to see in us joy. You know, I, I went to, uh, I had the opportunity to go this, uh, this week to um, oh, Lynn Britt's funeral. And I didn't know Lynn Britt. But they all talked about Lynn Britt. And you know what they all said about Lynn Britt? She was filled with joy. There was just something about Lynn that evidently when you were in her presence, you just felt good because of who she was filled with joy. You know, that's, how, that's, who we're, that's the fruit that God's looking for. When Jesus says, abide in me, and you're going to bear fruit, you're going you're to be joyful people and loving people and kind people and forgiving people. You're going to be patient people. You're going to be self-controlled people. That's who you're going to be if the fruit of the Spirit, that's the fruit that God is looking for in us, this fruit of character. So John the Baptist challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance and then I'll baptize you. What was he talking about? He's talking about righteousness and holiness, the kind of things that flow from a person who is connected to Jesus, who is in love with Jesus and is connected to Jesus and abiding in him. That's the kind of fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17, that the true and false teachers could be distinguished from each other by their fruit. Paul would write to the Philippian church in chapter 1, he would say, be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1.10, Paul would write, bearing fruit in every good work. See, here's the problem with Israel. They were not bringing forth the fruit that God desired of them. They weren't. They were constantly walking in disobedience and not in faith and not in righteousness. Okay, And God would destroy the temple in AD 70 and not let it be rebuilt even to this day. Because he instituted a new covenant, and Jesus is the new covenant, and we are to bear the fruit that he has desired from the beginning. From the very beginning, this is the things that God desires of us, that we be different sort of people, that we be different sort of people, people who love and who forgive and who are, and I'm, you know, you're like, oh, kumbaya, I mean, you're, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we're strong people, but we're people who are filled with the character of Jesus, and we live out his life on earth now. Now, I was talking to my, my friend Lenny this week, and I was telling him that there's really, there's two things to this Christian life. There is the promise of eternal life and immortality and, and resurrection and the kingdom of God to come. That's part of it, right? And that's, and of course, that is, that's a huge hope for me now, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's always there, okay? 
But there's another side to this following Jesus, and that is that he changes our lives now, and he affects us now, and we should be different now. In our church, our church family, not the buildings, but us, we should be known as people who love people and care for people and, and are filled with joy. I mean, people should see that in us because that's the fruit. That's the fruit of following and being connected to Jesus, okay? And I need to move on. As we live in close relationship with Christ, there is a change in our character. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we're conformed into the image of Jesus, and we start to look like him more and more and more. And I don't mean growing long hair, Stephen Coggin. <laughs> Although I'm really jealous of your long hair, but anyway... Uh, it's, uh, it's not, it's not an, I'm not talking about appearance. I'm talking about character of heart. We look like him that way. We're conformed to his image. Now in verse 5, let me just say this before I move to the last question. In verse 5, he says, you know, if we abide in him, we're going to bear fruit. But he doesn't just say we're going to bear fruit. He says we're going to bear what? Much fruit. We're going to bear much fruit. God is not content with us just barely looking like Jesus. God wants us to be like Jesus in everything so that we're bearing great, great fruit, looking like him and being like him. Please don't think Jimmy's speaking to you from some, some platform of achievement where I've gotten there and you guys haven't. No, I'm, I'm with you. I want to bear more fruit. I want to be more like Jesus. And that's what he says. So we should be coming more, greater quantities of love, greater quantities of joy, greater quantities of peace and patience and kindness and goodness. We should be ever increasing in these things. That brings me to, my, to the last second question that hopefully you've already thought about what I'm going to say it is. But the first question that has to be answered when Jesus says, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit, the first question is, what is that fruit? Well, we just told you what it is. It's fruit of character. It's fruit of righteousness and holiness. And here's the second question, though. How do I abide in Jesus? What exactly does that mean when Jesus says, stay connected to me? You know, stay, abide in me. If you, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. It's not you have to try. You're going to bear fruit if, you, if you're connected to me. So the question then, I think we have to ask ourselves from what Jesus told them that night was, how do I abide in Christ? How do I do it? Well, I think Jesus sort of answers the question in verse 10, but it's going to be circular. It's going to be a circular answer. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. So Jesus says, in a way, if you obey me, that's how you abide. You obey me and you abide. Now, the problem with that is that obeying Jesus is also part of the fruit of abiding, right? As I abide, I, I follow his commandments. I do what he wants. So there's a little bit of circular reasoning in that. Hey, I, I abide to bear fruit, but I bear fruit to abide. So I think the answer to how I abide has to be somewhat, somewhat deeper, if you would, or, or you know, a little bit more, we have to speak to it a little, in a little bit more complete way than just simply saying to abide is to just do what Jesus says, okay? Although that's included in it. So what, I, what I've done is I want to give you three suggestions, and this is where, you know, you know preaching, sharing with you, this, this is not what the text says. This is Jimmy trying to help us understand what does Jesus mean when he says abide? How, how do I abide? And I have three suggestions. Three suggestions that I, that I, believe, I believe are very helpful for helping us abide. But just, just know that. Here's the first one. We abide in Jesus by resting in faith. We abide in Jesus by resting in faith. Not by striving not by working really hard to stay connected to Jesus. We stay connected to Jesus by abiding in our faith in him. And to help explain this, I want to read you a letter from Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor was the, the great missionary of the, of the mid-19th century. He was instrumental in sending, if not hundreds, thousands of missionaries to inland China. And in, uh, on October 17th of 1869, he wrote his sister a rather long letter. I, I'm only going to read part of it, 
But it, he's, sharing, he's so excited about something that's happened to him in this arena of abiding. So these are his words, and I quote, Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. I knew that if I could only abide in Christ, all would be well, but I could not. I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye from him for a moment, but pressure of duty, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions, apt to be so wearying, often caused me to forget him. And he goes on in the letter, I won't read anymore, but he, he goes on to talk about just how he tried so hard to abide in Christ all day and every day. And then one day he... Uh, He's really discouraged, and he gets a letter from, from one of the missionaries in China, a fellow by the name of John McCarthy, and he says it changed his life. So I'm going to go back and hear his words again. When my, and he's writing to his sister. When my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure, but saw the light before I did, wrote, here's McCarthy's words, but how to get faith strengthened, not by striving after faith, but by resting in the faithful one. As I read, I saw it all. If we believe not, he abides faithful. I looked to Jesus and saw, and when I saw, oh, how the joy flowed, that he had said, I will never leave you. And there is rest, I thought. I have striven in vain to rest in him. I strive no more. For has he not promised to abide with me, never to leave me, never to fail me? And dearie, he never will. But this was not all he showed me, nor one half, as I thought of the vine and the branches, what light the blessed spirit poured directly into my soul, how great seemed my mistake in having wished to get the sap and the fullness of him. I saw not only that Jesus would never leave me, but that I was a member of his body and his flesh and of his bone. The vine now I see is not the root merely, but all, root, stem, branches, twigs, leaves, flowers, fruit. And Jesus is not only that, he's the soil and the sunshine and the air and the showers. And 10,000 times more than we have ever dreamed, wished for, or needed. Oh, the joy of seeing this truth. I do pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know, the, and, know and enjoy the riches freely given us in Christ. So I don't know if you, if you followed what, what uh, Hudson was saying, but what he said was, you know, I, I was always striving to stay connected to Jesus. I was always working hard to try to get the sap from Jesus so that I could... And he said, and one day I, I, I realized through McCarthy's words, I realized that I didn't have to strive to stay connected, connected to Jesus. He was the faithful one. I just needed to remain in my faith in him. I just needed to put my faith in him and trust in him. And it changed everything for, for Hudson Taylor. We abide not by striving, but by continuing to believe, to trust in our faithful one. Years later, in 1932, Hudson Taylor's son, Frederick, wrote this letter, or wrote this about his father. He said, and I quote, Here was a man almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any one of them which may contain news of death or lack of funds or, or riots or serious trouble, yet all were opened and read and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm, dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. Yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it save the scriptural expression in God. He was in God all the time and God in him. And it was the true abiding of John 15. If you don't abide in faith, you will not bear fruit. You'll not, not abide, bear much fruit. You won't abide. You won't bear any fruit and you will be destroyed. Faith is the key. Faith is the victory. Without faith, we can't please God. Remaining in Jesus is remaining in faith, in Him, the faithful one. Resting in Him by faith that He, he has us and He'll keep us and He loves us. It's, it's resting in Him. So here's my application to help you remain in Christ. 
Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Do you do that? Do you know what I mean when I say preach the gospel to yourself every day? I mean, when you wake up in the morning, preach the gospel. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus died for me so that my sin is taken care of. Jesus died and rose again so that one day I will have immortality with him and everyone I love in his new kingdom. I mean, preach the gospel to yourself every day. When you're weary and when you're sad, preach the gospel to yourself. When you're scared, preach the gospel. He is faithful. He is with you. Rest in him. Preach it to yourself all the time. The second suggestion I have is that we, re- we abide by retaining focus. And what I mean by that is that Jesus says in verse 7, if my words remain in you. Part of letting Jesus uh, change us and, and you know, is, is, is knowing his words. So I think, and again, this is, this is just me trying to give you some helps and what it means to, or how to abide. I, I, I think Jesus is trying to tell us, he tells him, my words have already washed you. Now remain in my words. So I think what Jesus is trying to say, the key to us Abiding in Christ is to letting his words continue to wash us, continue to change us, continue to work in us, continue to prune us. Last week I shared something and I had a couple people tell me I shouldn't have said it. And, and, and it's fine, I, I, do, I take their advice and so I really actually want to elaborate on what I said last week. I said, last week I said there, there's a lot of things that I used to believe that I've changed. I said that. And, uh, and somebody said, hey, Jimmy, you don't have any context for that. People are going to no, no telling what they're thinking you're changing on. Well, I really want, I want to say one thing about myself as you, know, guys, you guys have given me the privilege of this desk most of the time. And so I, I want to be faithful to that. I want you to know I've not changed my position on the word of God. I believe God's word is God's word for us. And, 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 and I want to be faithful to it. I haven't changed my views on who our Savior is, on how his death was instrumental for us, but there have been some other issues that maybe Christians might call secondary or, or even tertiary issues. All of you don't agree with me on a lot of, on several things, I should say, right? Okay. Um, but I want to tell you, I want to be teachable. I want to be teachable. I want the words of God to continue to wash me. I want the words of God to continue to work in my heart. And and not that necessarily everything has to change, but I want to be always growing, always learning, always changing. I don't want to coast out. I'm 60. I don't want to coast out. I don't know how long I have, but I want to run the race at at, at the best steam a 60-year-old can run. I want to run to the end. And part of what that means to me is I want to be learning and understanding and applying the Word of God and keeping my focus on His Word so that I'm learning it and I'm applying it to my life. And I may, I didn't always get it right then, I may not always get it right now, but I'm telling you, my heart is to be teachable. And I think if you want to abide in Christ, you need to be consistently engaging the Word of God. You need to let his words wash you and change you and work in your heart. It's not just for me, the pastor. Oh my goodness, if I could simply get that one truth across to you. I am am no one different than you other than I've got this job or this role or whatever. But you're to be like me and I'm to be like you. We need to be engaging the word of God always. And you are, not, you are not excused from engaging the Word of God. I, I think in our day in any way, maybe, maybe in a day gone by when no one had the Word of God, we had to listen to it come through the rabbis or, or through, the, through the pastors, whatever they called them back generation ago, generations ago, when that was the only way to get the Word of God, maybe there was some excuse, but there's no excuse today. You all have your Word of God. You probably have it in your pocket on your phone. You all have the Word of God, and you should be engaging the Word of God personally. You should be challenging yourself always with the Word of God. That's how we abide. We let His words continue to work and to wash and to change us and to to do what they're going to do in us. That brings me to the last suggestion. And the last suggestion that I have is that we abide by engaging in intentional fellowship. 
Not fellowship, fellowship. And, and so I'm coming full circle to what I told you Jesus said about obedience, okay? Um, so I want to say this different because I don't think Jesus is simply saying you abide by checking off the rule list. I mean, our, our, our walk with Jesus is not a rule thing. Our walk with Jesus is a relationship. Our walk with Jesus is he's a real person. He's God. He actually took on humanity so that if I had lived when he lived, I could have seen him and touched him like Peter and John and all of them said, we held him, we saw him, we, we touched him. They played football together. <laughs> I don't know what they played back then, but I'm sure they played some games together. Here's my point. Here, here's my point. Um, being a follower of Jesus isn't about, I've got my checklist here and I'm doing all the things that Jesus wants me to do. It's not that. It's, it's a friendship. It's a relationship. Jesus told these 11 guys that same night, you remember, maybe Judas was with them at this point. No, I think he'd gone. But remember, he said to them, I don't, I call you friends. Because a, a, a servant doesn't know what the master's doing, but you know everything that I'm doing. I call you friends. The Son of God called those 11 men his friends. John said, we're, we're the ones that Jesus loved. Because I've told you, I don't think John was talking about just himself. I think he's talking about all of them. They felt the love of Jesus. So I'm, I'm, I'm calling this the way that we abide is by engaging in intentional fellowship because I'm trying to separate it from just checking off a checklist of things that this is what Jesus wants me to do, so I'm checking it off, as opposed to recognizing that fellowship is a heart issue. It, it's about my heart, giving my heart to follow this one who is king, giving my heart to love him. And, you know, Jesus said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And it says they immediately left their jobs. They left everything and intentionally followed him. When he met Matthew at the tax collector box, you know, he said, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew left the tax collector box, followed him. I see following Jesus is not rule keeping, but it's intentionally giving my life to go wherever he leads, to, to go wherever he leads me to go, to do whatever he tells me to do and to live for his kingdom the way he wants. In Matthew 8, 18, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. And the scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have dens, birds have sky, the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another one, Lord, he said, First, I want to be one of your disciples, but first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 19, 21, if you want to be perfect, Jesus said, go sell your belongings, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. You see, this isn't, abiding isn't about keeping the rules, abiding is about giving your life to follow Jesus. That's how we abide with him, we follow him. One of my favorite movies is the movie Dave. Y'all remember that movie? I mean, it's, it's probably from the opposite political stand that I would be in maybe, but, but at the end of the movie, Dave, who's impersonated the president for this long time, they've, they've switched it back around and, and he's gotten out of it without being caught. He's been a great guy as the president and, uh, and he's changed all kinds of things. The real president was a jerk. And anyway, so they, he's been found out. So he... he if you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to explain it to you. But anyway, at the end, Dave gets out of it, and he's back to being Dave again. And one of the Secret Service guys who's been tasked to protect the president knows all along that Dave is not the real president. And they're sitting in the ambulance, and Dave, the fake president, is about to walk off because he looks just like the old president. The new, the, the, anyway, and the security guard looks, I mean, the, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Don't tell any Secret Service person I called him a security guard. But anyway, the Secret Service person looks over at Dave and he says, Dave, I would have taken a bullet for you. And he knows Dave's not the president, but he would have taken a bullet for Dave. See, I think staying connected to Jesus is you looking at him and saying, I'll take a bullet for you. 
Let me end with Jesus, what he says at the very end of, of verse 11. He says, I'm telling you all of this because I want my joy to fill your heart. And I want you to be filled with joy. There's no other way to be happy, to be filled with joy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let's bow our heads. All of you thinkers, you're, you're already way ahead of me, and God's been speaking to you, and you've made applications, but maybe there's someone who's just been listening and not really seeking to necessarily consider this in light of their own life. And so, in this quiet moment, although Janet, I would like to ask you to play something for me, for us. In this quiet moment, I want to give you an opportunity to trust in Jesus, to, to connect yourself. Now, he, God does the connecting, but you have to recognize, I, I'm, I'm, con, I'm disconnected from the vine. And if you are willing to say, I want to be a part of the vine, I, I want to be a part of Jesus and his family and his kingdom, then the Holy Spirit will, he will engraft you into, into the vine, into the olive tree. Romans chapter 11 gives us the analogy of an olive tree and he grafts us in. He does the grafting. He brings us in. But he brings us in when we're willing to say, Lord, I want to be a part of your kingdom. And so maybe there's somebody here this morning who wants to, wants to be engrafted into the vine, who wants to be a branch in the vine. This is your opportunity. Right where you sit, just, just say in your heart, Lord, engraft me in. I want to follow you. With every head still bowed. And you know, if this morning it's been you and you're the person who wants to be part of the vine, it's in your heart to want to follow Jesus, to, to have a relationship with Jesus that never ends because he's, he's going to make it eternal. He's going to give us immortality. We'll be with him forever. So if, if you would like to belong to him, or maybe I should say you've already said, Lord, I want to belong to you, then, then grab me afterwards if you would, or grab one of the other people. That maybe you came with someone. Tell them, hey, today I'm receiving Jesus. I, I, I'm receiving Jesus. So just let somebody know what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart. For the rest of us, Let's abide, remain faithful, remain in faith, not faithful, I remain faithful, but he's the faithful, remain resting in faith, engage in God's word. And then follow him with all your heart. Father, thank you for this morning, the time to, thank you for the freedom to gather like this and to open our Bibles and to just read what Jesus said that night. Lord, help us to apply these things that apply to us. And Lord, may we bring glory and honor to you this week by bearing much fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.